We are on Yevamos Memvav Amen Aleph 46A2 in the Art Scroll Gemara. In the last recording, we discussed how a uh, non-Jewish slave, when he is sold by his non-Jewish master to a Jew, so that sale involves the sale of the Kinyan Mamon, of the fact that now he's selling his rights to have the slave work for him, and that's the and then the Jew uh, acquires uh, those rights. However, uh, that slave has the ability to uh, get out of that responsibility. If he goes to the mikvah, every non every non Jewish slave has to go to the mikvah uh, before they uh, join into the slavery and become slaves for a Jew. But when they go into the mikvah, usually they go into the mikvah for the purposes of becoming a slave, and they become. They have a quasi-status of a Jew. When they are free, then they become fully Jewish. Uh, but they do have a quasi-status of a Jew. If this non-Jewish slave who was sold, only when they were sold by a non-Jew, so if they go into the mikvah, not for the purposes of becoming a slave, but for the, for the purposes of becoming a full-fledged Jew, they are accepting upon themselves all the mitzvot, and they want to become a full-fledged Jew. So then they change their identity completely, and then they are no longer... Uh, required to be a slave for the Jew because they have they changed their identity they're no longer not Jewish they are now Jewish and so that removes themselves from the responsibility to uh, be a slave to a Jew uh, that's what we discussed in the last recording so the Gemara now uh, discusses uh, some uh, recommendations and suggestions of what a Jewish owner should do to make sure that when they go to the mikvah, it's not for the purposes of becoming fully Jewish, but it's really for the purposes of becoming a slave. So Amr Shmuel, Shmuel says, that the owner, the Jewish owner, has to should really have some sort of involvement when the non-Jewish slave goes into the mikvah, should sort of push down and make sure, and should look like he's forcing the non-Jewish slave to go into the mikvah. And what this accomplishes is that um, this is now a forced going into the mikvah so that it's, it is not that the non-Jewish slave is going on his own, even if, it, what's interesting is even if he has an intention of becoming a Jew, it still wouldn't work because the Jewish owner is now um, also forcing, is pushing the non-Jewish slave into the mikvah, so that will be the overriding way in which we define this action. This is an action of, even if the non-Jewish uh slave has in mind to become fully Jewish, uh, this action is now defined based on what the Jewish owner does. And since the Jewish owner is forcing him into the water, uh, or he's, he's showing an action which looks like he's forcing him into the water, that will define his action, and it won't be viewed as going to the mikvah for the purposes of becoming a full-fledged Jew, but it's for the purposes of becoming a slave. Okay, that is the suggestion that's given. And they give the following story. This this is what happened when Minyamin, the slave of Ashi, he had to go to the mikvah. He had to go to the mikvah to become a slave. Ashi gave him over to Ravina and Rav Acha, the son of Rava. And Amarlu, he said to them, He said, make sure that he goes to the mikvah for the purposes of becoming a slave. And if you don't, and if he doesn't, uh, so then I will demand compensation from you. That you are now responsible. You are responsible to make sure that he goes to the mikvah for the purposes of becoming a slave. So what do they do? Ramulei 
Arvisa B'tzavare, they put a leash around his neck, a chain around his neck, and they sometimes made it uh, stronger, sometimes they made it weaker, looser or tighter. Why? Why did the Gemara explain? Why do they do this? Arpule, they would loosen it. The halach is that when it comes to the mikvah, that there can't be a chatzitza. There cannot be anything which separates between the water and the body. The entire body has to be uh, without a chatzitza, without anything separating between the body and the water. And so therefore they would loosen uh, this chain to make sure that the water goes through. But they would also tighten it. So that it's clear that uh, the reason why he's going into the mikvah is for the purpose of becoming a slave and not that he will uh, just jump in and say that he's doing it for the purposes of becoming a Jew and then he could get out of this uh, slavery. Uh, no, they wanted to make sure that it's clear that he's doing it for the purposes of slavery and so therefore they would put this uh, chain around him and tighten it. Um, and also, as he put his head up from the water, so they would again continue to do something to, to show that he's doing it for the purposes of becoming a slave. Because as we pointed out before, there's a very easy way. Rav Ashi bought him from a non-Jew. He paid for him as a slave. Um, and uh, he has rights uh, to, for him to work for him as a slave. And uh, but, but we pointed out that he could easily get out of it by just going to the mikvah to become a full-fledged Jew. And so the other thing we do to make sure <coughs> that this is not an action of becoming a full-fledged Jew is Bahadi the Deli Maya as his head comes up from the water, Anchule Zulta Dina Aresha. So they placed a pail of cement upon his head. Ba'amrulain they would say and they said to him, Zil Marach, go deliver this pail of cement to your master. Another expression of the fact that he is a slave. And so they would do this because this would be the defining way that this is how we would define what the action is. It's an action of going to the mikvah not for the purposes of becoming a Jew even if that's what the uh, non-Jew had in mind. But since uh, this overall action is being forced upon him, and there's different ways in which they show that it's really for the purposes of slavery, so then that's how we uh, define this action. Okay. The Gemara now has a, uh, the following uh, related story to the general concept of a non-Jewish slave. Again, we will discuss more of this uh, later on. Uh, and it's uh, it's a bit of a it's definitely a foreign concept uh, to us, uh, but uh, we'll see how the Gemara understands this idea of a non-Jewish slave later on in this Masechta in the tractate. So the Gemara has one more one more related story. Amar le Rav Papa le Rav. Rav Papa said to Rav, Chazi Mar, Hani Debei Papa Bar Abba. Have you seen the house of Papa Bar Abba? The Yahavu Zuzei Leinchi Lechargaihu. Basically, the case is as follows. Papa Bar Abba was very wealthy. He was a very wealthy person. And uh, the law of the land was, in the country that he was in, the law of the land was that if somebody was not able to afford to pay for their taxes, and somebody else paid for them, so then they automatically become slaves uh, to them. Now, this is not a Jewish law. This was a law in that particular country that they were living in. This was the law of the king. That if somebody else pays for your taxes, you now become a slave uh, to that person. And that's what Papa Bar Abba did. Papa Bar Abba, he would pay the taxes for other people who couldn't afford it. And they, by, by the law of the land, they automatically became uh, his slaves. So the question was, is this now halakhically binding to the extent that when they go free, do they, re- do they require 
a get shechor? Do they require a, a that document, which is required from a halachic perspective, uh, saying that they go free? Is it, is it viewed as a halachic f- uh, uh, valid form of uh, acquiring the person as a slave, such that it requires them when they go free to have this get shechor? They require a document of freedom. Uh, do we require that in this case or not? That's the question. So Amalei, Rabbi says back then, he says, thank God that I'm alive to tell you this halacha so that people don't forget about the following halacha. It's very important that you know about this halacha. This is what Rav Sheshesh said. Uh, the seal of the bondage of these people lies in the power of the king. The king decides whether or not they become slaves. And what did the king say? The king was the one who said that the person who can't afford, who doesn't pay for taxes, he becomes a slave to the one who does pay taxes. And so therefore, uh, that is his decree. There's a concept of that the law of the land is halakhically binding. And so therefore, they do require a get or They would require this uh, bill of emancipation, this document uh, which is halakhically required when they go free to say that they are now completely free. Okay, that is uh, really the end of this discussion of an Eved Kanani. Um, and so uh, the Gemara now continues with uh, one last, another another story. This is about uh, conversion, another story about conversion. And then uh, after after we do this story, so then we will begin in the next recording with really the beginning of many, many laws about conversion itself. So now this is sort of the beginning of it. It gets into a side topic, but it is the beginning of it. So Rabbi Chia Bar Abba Gavla. New topic. Rabbi Chia Bar Abba visited Gavla. He visited a place called Gavla. And what did he see? He saw that they did three things that were wrong. They did three things wrong there. First of all, number one is that he saw Jewish women were becoming pregnant from Gerim, from converts uh, who only went halfway. They only went halfway. They only did the Mila. These are, are males who, uh, were, in order for them to convert, there's we require them to have a bris Mila, and they have to go to the Mikvah. And they only went halfway. They only had the bris Mila. They only had a circumcision. They did not go to the Mikvah. So they are not really Jewish yet. They have to complete the entire process. And we will discuss more about this uh, in the coming recordings, about why we require both. Do we require both? But we pass that we require both. We hold that we require both. And uh, these women were becoming pregnant from these men who were not, in the end of the day, they were not Jewish because they didn't complete the process. They didn't go to the mikvah. That's number one of what he saw. Number two, the Chazachamra de Yisrael, the Mazgu of the Kacham Vishal Yisrael. Number two, with a little bit of background, uh, the halacha is that there's a concept called Yain Nesach. Uh, wine, on a rabbinic level, wine which is touched by a non-Jew, uh, a Jew is not allowed to drink. A Jew is not allowed to drink wine, which is touched, the bottle is touched by a non-Jew. The reason for this is primarily because uh, there are a few important rabbinic uh, decrees to prevent intermarriage. And wine is definitely used in the context of social gatherings. And so in order to prevent intermarriage, uh, there's a rabbinic prohibition for a Jew to drink any wine which was touched by a non-Jew. Uh, the second reason is that because we're concerned that they used it in the context of idol worship, that wine is uh, a common drink which is 
uh, used in the context of idol worship, and so therefore we're concerned that if they're touching it, that they used it in the context of idol worship, which is why uh, this ruling does not apply to cooked wine. If it's cooked, we, it's, uh, it, was, it was not used in the context of idol worship, and so therefore any cooked wine, wine which was yain mavusha, which was previously cooked, uh, so this prohibition does not apply, but for it to any other wine, it does apply. Um, and so therefore you're not allowed to touch, uh, you're not allowed to drink wine which is touched by a non-Jew. But what did he see in the city? They didn't touch the wine. The non-Jew didn't touch the wine. But what they did was they diluted the wine with water. So they weren't touching the wine, but they diluted the wine with water. And the Jews were drinking it. And that was also a problem. He said that was also a problem. The third thing that he saw that was a problem is the third thing that he saw was, and the the background to this is uh, that one of the other prohibitions, rabbinic prohibitions, uh, with regards to preventing intermarriage, is to um, to not eat any food which was cooked by a non-Jew. Now there are certainly limitations to this rule, uh, and we will, this gemara will discuss some of them. Uh, but the rule itself is that this rabbinic rule is that a, a Jew is not allowed to eat any food which was cooked by a non-Jew. And again, this is because uh, social gatherings take place around food, around dining. And so therefore, a way to, to prevent intermarriage, uh, they said that a person should not eat any food which is cooked by a non-Jew. And we'll see uh, that there are a number of limitations um, and that this doesn't apply uh, to all foods. We'll see exactly... Uh, which foods this does apply to, which foods this doesn't apply to. At least some of the uh, some of the examples are found within our Gemara. But what did he see? He saw, he saw that non-Jews were cooking termusin, some beans, and the Jews and the Jews were eating it. And he didn't say anything. And these are three cases. It happens to be all three cases have to do with intermarriage. The first case is uh, is a case where the Jewish women were marrying men who only did part of the process of conversion but not the complete process. The second case is that they were being, um, they, they were not taking the rabbinic prohibition of uh, not drinking wine, which is touched by a non-Jew seriously. And the third one is also that they didn't take seriously uh, the concept of not eating something which is cooked by a non-Jew. And the, all the, and the last two are rabbinic prohibitions out of concern that it will lead to intermarriage. So all three are related. But he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything to anybody. But what, who did he say something to? He said something to us, the Kamei Rabbi Yochanan. He went in front of Rabbi Yochanan, who was uh, a rabbi in the city, and he said, "Amrle." He said to him, He says, "You see, well, in this, in your own city, the children are mamzerim. The children uh, are mamzerim, and we'll see why they're mamzerim in a second. Uh, and they're drinking forbidden wine that they're not allowed to drink, and also And he says also with regards to this last case of." Eating the termisa and the beans that were cooked by a non-Jew, that too is a problem. But he adds, which the Gemara will address, they adds that technically it's allowed. It's allowed for them to eat this termisa. We'll explain why in a minute. But they, but because they're not bnei Torah, because they're not uh, fluent with halacha, they should really, we, they should really be more stringent. The rabbis should tell them to be more stringent upon themselves because they're not going to be able to understand the nuances and the differentiation between different types of food. But technically, by the letter of the law, it's allowed. But because they're not B'nai Torah, they're not people who understand uh, the details of halacha, we should just be stringent uh, with them as well. And, and they're being lenient. They're being lenient and uh, they're not taking it seriously. So the Gemara now analyzes all three, uh, all three cases. 
When he first said uh, that the children are Mamzerim, why are they Mamzerim? They are Mamzerim because Rabbi Yochanan Latame. Rabbi Yochanan is going according to his reason. Uh, just to, to backtrack, uh, Rabbi Yochanan said, so Rabbi Yochanan is one who came to visit the city. He told Rabbi Yochanan about this. Rabbi Yochanan then said back to Rabbi Yochanan, you should go make an announcement with regards to these things. Tell them that they're doing the wrong thing. So Rabbi Yochanan was the one who said this. And Rabbi Yochanan is going according to his reasoning. In order to say that this child is a mamzer, when it's a non-Jew who did the Mila, who had a circumcision for the purposes of conversion, but didn't go to the mikveh yet, so you have to assume two things. Assumption number one is that in order to become a full-fledged Jew, to be a convert, one has to both have a circumcision and go to the mikvah. We'll see that this is not so simple. It certainly is the way we paskin today, the way we follow today. But it's not so simple. We'll see other opinions of this in the Gemara. That's assumption number one. So the person is still not Jewish. And then assumption number two is that when a Jewish woman has a child with a non-Jewish man, that the child is a mamzer. And we pointed out in the past that this is not how we follow today, but that is how Rabbi Yochanan follows. So that's why Rabbi Yochanan said that the child, the children are mamzerim. The children are mamzerim because he holds up both assumptions. Assumption number one is that this person is not Jewish because he didn't go to the mikveh yet. Assumption number two is that uh, the child is a mamzer because if the mother is Jewish and the father is not Jewish, then the child is a mamzer. That is uh, with regards to the first case. Now let's move on to the second case. He said that the wine is also a It's a rabbinic prohibition because the non-Jew was involved, even though the non-Jew didn't touch the wine. The non-Jew didn't touch the wine. The rabbinic prohibition is in a situation where the non-Jew touches the wine. What did the non-Jew do? He just diluted the wine with water. It was from his... He, he was involved. He, he added to the wine. So that's also a prohibition. Why? Mishum, it's based on the following idea. Leich leich amen lenezira, schor sor chor lekarma lo Because we tell the Nazar, the Nazar is somebody who takes upon himself never to uh, drink uh, wine. We say... Uh, don't go to a vineyard. <laughs> don't put yourself in, in such a close proximity to to the avera, to the to the to the sin. Uh, your desires are gonna are gonna um, take control, and you're gonna end up drinking wine. So, so too over here. It's true the non-Jew is not touching the wine, but still they're very very getting very very close to it. They're getting very close to it, and so therefore we say that is also part of the rabbinic prohibition. That was case number two. Now case number three. This is the Bishal Akam, the rabbinic prohibition to eat food that was cooked by a non-Jew. And we pointed out that really these beans, these tremusin, really technically by the letter of law, they're allowed, but he said they shouldn't be allowed because these are, we're discussing people here who are not going to understand the nuances of Torah. So why is it allowed? Why is it technically allowed? The Gemara says, why should this be allowed? We know of one case, one reason why, uh, one exception to the rule, is that if it's eaten raw, if if, if it's edible raw, uh, so then this rule does not apply. A non-Jew is allowed to cook for a Jew, food which is edible raw. Um, and these termisin, however, these termisin are not, these beans are not edible raw. So it should it should be a, it should be a problem, it should be a prohibition. So why does he say technically... It's allowed. So the Gemara answers, Rabbi Yochanan, though Rabbi Yochanan holds like uh, another another version to the statement of Rishmo Bar Yitzchak, 
of a time of day in Torah, Habanei Torah Shari. The reason why technically it's allowed is because uh, a second exception to the rule from this other version is that um, is that it's not Ola al Shulcha Malachim because it's not food which would be served at the table of kings. It's only food that would, that would be served at the table of kings, which is part of this rabbinic prohibition. Uh, but if it's not going to be served at uh, a state's dinner at, at you know at the White House, uh, so then uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, fall under this uh, prohibition. So the Aragamar discusses two exceptions to the rule. Number one is that if it's edible raw, so there's a whole question about what about eggs, um, because maybe it's, sometimes it's edible raw if if a person really needs it, or uh, um, other examples maybe fish because sushi it's edible raw. Uh, and so things which are edible raw, the prohibition does not apply to. Um, so those are discussions, um, those those cases that we brought up. And then the second exception to the rule that's found within our Gemara is that it has to be, if it's, the prohibition only applies if it's Ola al-Shulcham malachim. If it's something which is eaten at uh, a big dinner, at a big banquet. Now there's a question of, within the second exception, is the idea just that it can't be, it can't be food which is just uh, low-class food, but anything which is just... Uh, normally eaten uh, at, a, at a regular dinner, so then that would fall under the prohibition, or it really has to be fancy food. It has to be really fancier food. So there's a lot to discuss on this topic. What would be included on this? What would not be included on this? They discuss sardines. Sardines, would that be included in the prohibition or not? Uh, potato chips, uh, different things like that. Uh, would that be included in the prohibition? We don't have time to get into it, but that would be also part of the discussion. And then just uh, to note, it's not found in our Gemara, but another way to get out of this is that if the Jew is somewhat involved in the process, it's a discussion of how much they have to be involved in the process, uh, but if the Jew is somewhat involved in the process, is what, which is what we do in kosher restaurants, the Jew has to be somewhat involved in the process, and then a non-Jewish chef could take over at some point in time. Um, and again, the parameters have to be fleshed out, uh, but that would be another exception to this rule of Bishal Akum, of a non-Jew who cooks for a Jew.